bump elbows with your neighbor one more time. Get in the firing line, and uh, let's be in the firing line of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. We come before you and praise you for so many things. God, you're at work in so many areas. And uh, Lord, I just pray for each person in here today. God, show us that spot where we need to stand. We need to be ready. We need to do exactly what you're calling us to do. And we need to do this especially in our parenting. We need to do it especially as men. So Lord, on this man camp Sunday, uh, we're in my man camp outfit. Then Lord, speak to our hearts through your word. And we ask this especially for the men. For I ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated in the Lord's presence. If you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And I mentioned last time we talked about this, that what is really important is not what happens at the White House, but what is happening in your house. And I am not so much concerned about fighting a culture war as I am fighting a character war. And so the challenge that we face as a church is actually what it means from the Bible to parent. And we face that challenge because our society has a stubborn resistance to waking reality. And they totally redefine even waking reality. And for no other reason than the hatred of God, of this world system, of the devil who provokes them, And yet we are human beings who are engineered and designed with the capacity to give birth to another human being who we are then responsible to raise. Now that is biblical discipleship, but that is also God's plan for the home and for marriage and for the family. And so whether it is done as a single person or couple, whether it is done spiritually by a church, a family, or single individual, discipleship plays into God's purpose for your soul in eternity. And that is what God is all about in this life. Therefore, and this is my thesis for today's study, in parenting, God gives you a very real visible illustration in the physical realm of what your life should be geared toward in the spiritual realm. Our church grows because we are all about having babies. Now don't take that the wrong way because what we're talking about is having spiritual children who can follow after us, become a part of this family of faith, And become leaders of leaders and not just leaders of followers. And so it doesn't matter if you're married today or not. It does not matter if you have kids of your own physically or not. It does not matter if you are a single parent. Because what we are saying today has relevance to you and your life as a Christian. And this is our mission with your children. Our mission as a church is to bring balance to your children by letting them become workers in the Word, students of Scripture at the same time that they are students at work in in school. And that way we can help them focus on their soul walk with God, three things, their prayer life during the day, and being used of God as a missionary to their own classmates. So you get about 17 years to raise and train and shape and mold them 
for one thing, into a productive member of society, but really into the image of Christ. And every child you have, this is what you do. And yet, out of 168 hours in the week, we get your kids maybe one or two of those hours. And that is all that we get them to try and bring balance to your children by letting them become workers in the Word, students of Scripture, as well as at school. So we've got only one or two hours in a week to do what the devil can take his time to undo when they are away from us. He can take his time to influence them away from the things that we only have a minute to instill. So that means we got to raise you right as the parents in order to raise them right because the reality, and this is our first point for study, the reality is every day your children leave your home. There are systems at work designed to unravel what you teach them. Every Sunday you leave church, that same thing is true. The competition is great because music, media, moguls, and miseducation is going to give them a different story than we give them and you are giving them. And simply the marketing of life is going to give them a different story. But you know, also our advantage is great because God's Spirit always answers to God's Word. So if biblical adulting was ever important, it is desperately needed today. Since God's Spirit answers to God's Word, all it needs is the right person in the right place to give the Word of God at the right time in order for the Spirit to work in the lives and the hearts of the people you come in contact with. The home is the hope of our society. And the reason our society is such a mess, the reason we are in a wreck is because our homes are in a wreck. Your home is the hope of our church as we move and as we move forward. So today, I want to bring hope to your home by looking at this specific issue of parenting once again. If you're going to parent in your home, if you're going to be adulting in the home, just like if you're going to be a good discipler, you need to rely on the biblical authority of Scripture. Because while the schools have changed, and our government has changed, and the laws have changed, the Supreme Court rulings have changed, and our culture has changed, children have not changed. God has not changed. His Word has not changed, though many today are changing it. But walking in the Spirit has not changed. And since children come from God, we've got to deal with what is constant, not get distracted by what is drifting. So let's go to the manual that was written by the inventor of the home and the family, because he is out to remake your life this morning. Today I want to start our thoughts in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and we're going to see in this verse four productive principles that you have to follow, you have to use these to do adulting in the home when it comes to parenting. And then we'll be able to move on 
maybe to specific techniques in the book of Proverbs, but look, at, look with me at Ephesians 6 verse 4. And ye fathers, stop. Now there is a re- we're not even to a principle yet. But i got to stop you there because there's a reason why Paul says fathers and not mothers. There is a cultural reason and there's a biblical reason. So first, why fathers? Because God always holds the man responsible as the representative head. That is true of your home. That is true of the church. So in any household where a man is present, I'm giving a shout out to my homeboys right now. Okay, the ones that are, I mean, I wore my man camp outfit. This is our man camp message and all of our other men will get to listen to it later on. But I'm giving a shout out to you right now. No more drama, no more pain, no more playing games. So I guess you never listened to Mary J. Blige in your day, but uh, your halo's on a little too high. Acting like you never listened to that. But if you're not asleep, you need to wake up and unpack this passage with me because the buck stops at Bubba, not at Bertha. Hello, somebody. Some one person has to be held responsible. And God holds the father responsible and shame on us for not inculcating that into every boy born in this city. I'm just saying, because a father's biblical job is to transfer biblical information and biblical direction to the wife and to the children. You say, Alan, but too many children are not raised with fathers today. Yes, but also, and this is my second point for study, too many children are not reached by our church so that they can be raised to know what God is to them as their father and what they can do in Christ. So I will comment on culture, but I'm not starting with culture and I'm not starting a war with culture because judgment's got to begin at the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17. So let's don't dog on anybody else's failure. Let's fix our own because the man is not just the head. He is the representative head. And that means God holds him responsible no matter how he's acting, no matter how he was raised, no matter what resources he has. If he doesn't know, if he wasn't raised right, okay, well, if you don't know, you better ask somebody. But here's a tendency of the men in our age. We're living in the last days of the church. And Paul warned you. He warned you in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 and 2. To know this also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Well, why, Paul? What makes them so perilous? Because men shall be lovers of their own selves. That means Philippians 3.19. That means there is no growth from boys to men, but all the men keep acting like boys because they only love themselves. Therefore, they flee their responsibilities instead of fulfilling their responsibilities. So we emphasize the men. We have men camp every, every year, not because we're against women, not because we're against women's rights or equality, but because Satan has attacked our family by cutting off from God its head. Satan has attacked our society by attacking the fathers so that the boys will be messed up. 
And if you've already made the mistake of letting Satan fragment your family, then here's what you got to do. You got to do this right here. You've got to go and sin no more. Men, this is where we are at. This is the challenge that we have to rise to. God gives us everything we need to adult in the home so that we will not be lovers of self more than lovers of God. And the the greatness of this challenge is only matched by the greatness, the opportunity, the opportunity we have as a church, the opportunity this church has in our society right now, the opportunity you have as a Christian wherever you're at. Because here's our third point for study. When you do right in parenting, you're doing the work of eternity. Now I understand, and you need to recognize, your, your children have a free will also, which they will exercise as adults. But if you do the formative work, if you form them and format them in Bible principles, that goes a long, long way. So why, fathers? Well, second, second, this is a letter B, because in the Roman culture, women were enslaved and did not have rights, and you cannot hold accountable someone who does not, who is not responsible. And there's no accountability if they have no, if you, they're not the responsible person and they have no responsibility. So what had happened was, if a man did not want his firstborn child to be a girl, then that Roman father, with the permission of Roman law, could have the midwife bring the baby to him and he could go thumbs down. And it was a postpartum abortion. And that child would be put out on the curb, either to die, to be sold as a slave, to become an orphan, or to be used as a temple prostitute. Now, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. You're saying, Alan, but we're Americans. We're not Romans. We're civilized. And that was uncivilized. And so this doesn't really apply. And you don't even see how wrong you are. Because the greatest scourge on our society is the sex trafficking of women. And so girls who were put on the curb, drugged by a pimp, sold as a sex slave, used by men, and yet, this is our fourth point for study, it doesn't matter how you were abused as a child, sexually, verbally, or physically, you have no right to use that as an excuse to keep you from doing what God wants you to do right now. The Bible is sufficient. The Word of God will do the work because the Spirit always answers to the Word. That is our secret weapon. So your abused past does not give anyone cover for not following through on a righteous present. All you need is a church that's going to preach you the Bible, give you the gospel, take you through discipleship, I mean, I mean, this whole idea is what we learned from our forebears. Men and women who grew up in times of Jim Crow, discrimination, complete injustice. And it was their righteous lives. It was their Christian response to that which literally changed the course of this nation. They stood up and marched, but they also stood still on the firing line against the fire hoses, the police dogs, and their patient, righteous, suffering response reversed the mood of our entire country. It saved us 
from another civil war. So here comes Jesus. John chapter 4. Woman at the well. I mean, Jesus does what no good Jew is ever supposed to do. But because of that, Christianity changed sociology. Here comes Paul. And Paul starts writing about women in a whole different way. And because of that, Christianity changes sociology. And Paul says, men, you cannot exit your responsibility. I know it is tough. I know it is hard. I know you want to pull your hair out and just quit. But you cannot quit because you are God's representative in that house. You need to start counting on the power that you've got. Through, through the Spirit answering to the Word, because you're God's representative. So when Paul states, ye fathers, he's talking about father and mother both, but he's saying representatively and culturally fathers. And in the same sense as the Romans, you have the power of life and death in your hand, because the next generation is depending on you. I mean, I can only do so much. I told him yesterday at the discipleship conference, here, you know, here's the problem. I can call men out of the clubs. I can call them out of the bars. I can call them out of the cannabis stores. I, you know, whatever. I, you know, I can call them out of all the things they shouldn't be in, but I cannot replace from the pulpit what I have asked them to give up. I can't replace that from the pulpit. It has to be replaced by you. It has to be replaced in discipleship. It has to be replaced in the family. And so it's all depending on you. And, and it's not just your kids depending on you. It's their kids and their kids' kids and others' kids who are watching you. So if you just do these four things, you'll, you will have done everything God wants. You say, Alan, but I messed up already. Because I messed up already, I'm scared. I mean, I'm scared already. Well, you know, you look scary too, so, so I'm scared also. But just hang in there, because God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And that's the wonderful thing about the sufficiency of the Bible, of the grace of God, and of the power of the Holy Ghost answering to your application of the word. He can take a crooked stick and hit a hole in one. But it takes four principles of productive parenting. Number one, encourage your children. Let the whole church say encourage. And then look at chapter 6 verse 4 again. And ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath. Provoke not to wrath your children. That's a negative way of making this positive statement. Be your child's cheerleader. Do not anger. Do not enrage. Do not exasperate them. Do not discourage and frustrate them. Instead, inspire them. And encouragement is not related to what they achieve. It's related to who they are. So encouragement says, you know, you may have not done anything spectacular, but I want to wrap my arms around you. And you may have struck out at home plate, but that, that, that doesn't change the fact that I know your character. I know you tried. I know you did the best you could. I mean, just, just go home and get a drooping plant, spray some water on it. You can watch it perk up. Spread some manure on your garden and then let there be a good rain. Your neighbors will hate you. 
But those plants, they will love you. And encouragement takes a drooping child and makes them look up. So when, when they're young, you don't tell them that they'll never make it. When they're young, do not tell them that they're no good. What, just because they made you mad. And it's inconvenient for you. And when they're older, and you do correct them, do it respectful, in a respectful way that recognizes they simply don't know what you know yet, and you need to let them know that God gave you to them to set certain boundaries that are going to keep them safe. Because one thing that a child needs to see when he or she is grown up is that no matter what anybody else thinks of them, there's somebody special at home. Therefore, you push them because they are somebody special. You challenge them because you know they are somebody special. You correct them because you tell them they are somebody special. Many of our children are chasing significance and security and intimacy outside the home because they do not feel special inside the home In the home, they are given no hope. In the home, they feel rejection and provocation. You say, okay, Alan, break it down for me. Break it down like a fraction. How do you provoke a child? Well, there are a number of ways. First, by favoritism. If you favor one child over another, then the other child gets provoked. And favoritism also includes unfavorable comparisons. This is true in the home. This is true in your marriage. This is true with your spouse. An unfavorable comparison is never going to help you. Some spouses, some people, their spouse is wicked in their eyes for no other reason that they compare unfavorably to somebody else's spouse that they saw. And that ain't right. Don't be that way with your kids. Don't be that way in the home. Just stop the unfavorable comparisons. That's a wrong type of favoritism. There was a man in the Bible who favored his child. Jacob favored Joseph over his brothers. And that provoked the other ten brothers at the time to such wrath that they plotted to kill Joseph. And the one thing about God is that he plays no favorites. And the solution to favoritism is consistency and lack of comparison. Secondly, you provoke by manipulation. Manipulation is where you try to mold a child according to your dreams, and you don't do any investing into their dreams, and you try to live your life through them, so you manipulate them to where they do not want to be. Now Solomon says, in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And I don't know if you discovered this yet or not. If you haven't discovered it yet, just take a walk through our Harvest Kids and you will, you will recognize that you do not have to train a child in the way that he should not go. Because the way he should not go is a matter of heredity. Go ahead and admit it. And environment. And being trained in the way you should not go means that you end up in a place you should not be. Now, admittedly, sometimes a child is trained in the way that he should go, but he does not stay in the way that he was trained. 
But the way he should go is actually a matter of regeneration. And if he's been born again, that's something he can never lose. So if he is saved by being born again, ultimately he can never depart from it. But the way he should go also means the way he should go, not the way that you want to go through him or her. So, fifth point for study, your goal has to be that your kids go with God. They simply go with God, not necessarily that they have to follow you. So do not try to make your kids you. Try and influence them to be like Christ. And the family thing is way overrated in some parts of our society. Because all you are is God's nest. Those kids do not belong to you anyway. And so just because their genes came from you does not mean they got their soul from you. So you are designed to be God's caretaker, God's trainer, until they can get out of the nest and they can fly on their own. So the solution to manipulation is allowing them to explore for themselves. Thirdly, you provoke a child by neglect. We discourage our children when they never have our lives, they never have our time, they never have our priority. I mean, you can't give, make them the priority all the time. You, you shouldn't. But, but, but all other things being equal, they should be the priority. So let me give you a spelling lesson. Children spell love. It's a four-letter word. And kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but it should be a priority. So just like you cannot go on living like you're single if you are now married, you cannot live like you are alone if you have kids. And there are reasonable times when they know they can't have you, but most of the time they should know they have your attention. And the solution to neglect is showing interest. It's just as simple as that. You don't have to put them first, put God first, but you do have to show interest in them. So here's our sixth point for study. Your kids do not have to be first. They just have to be fitted toward the mission. You have to incorporate them as a part with you and God. Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Uh, you don't have to make your kids the priority. You have to make finding them a place with you in serving the Lord a priority. And that is how you avoid neglect. Not by focusing you and their attention on them. That is one of the signs of the last days. But it is by focusing their attention on and yours with you in ministry. So you go to church, they come to church. You sing, they sing. You go to an adult class, they go to Sunday school. You come back on Sunday night and pray, they go to Awana. Find them a role, give them an assignment. Make it a priority to make them a part. And this is so easy because even if it is only by prayer, you make them a part when you give them a report. So you make them a part by not shutting them out, but giving them a slice of the ministry that God has placed you in. I mean, what a great opportunity. And Lord willing, we'll have space to do it even better in a few months. 
But you will make their prayer a part if you come back and give them a report. And you know what? If you'll simply do that, it'll teach you to look at more of your own circumstances through the eyes of a child. It'll teach you to evaluate and regulate your life according to the stirred up vision and faith of a little child. Man, this has taken us to the next level. Sometimes the claims of God can seem to put you in a catch-22. But God does not ever give you twin responsibilities because they are incompatible. He gives you twin responsibilities because by your faith response and trust in the Spirit, both can be fulfilled. So God gave you that crisis as a tool to make your kids proud of you that you cannot be there with them because of what you are doing for God. That is the tool God allows you to have to keep your kids from getting selfish and self-centered. They should know that while you are not with them, they have a place with you in what God is doing through you in that crisis. So wives... Do not hold your husbands back from fulfilling God-given responsibilities or opportunities. Cover with the kids and be his helpmeet by making them a part of what is going on. Make them a part of what God's doing. Make them a part of that broad front of God's attack. How else do you provoke a child? When the final analysis is letter D, by being a bad role model... And the solution is to live what you want them to learn. Someone has said that children learn what they live or they become what they behold. So if that is criticism, they become judgmental. If that is shame, then they become shy. But if it is patience, they become tolerant. And if it's encouragement, they gain confidence. And if it's thanksgiving, they learn to appreciate. So here's our seventh point for study. If you want to reach a son or daughter who's already gone astray, then become a good example to them starting right now. Because your good example is their best hope for ever finding the way back out. So, do not make them angry because of who they are. And even your discipline has to be aimed at encouraging them to look up. Now, there's a second thing about adulting and being a family, a quality parent in your family. Number two, raise your children. Let the whole church say raise. And then look at uh, verse four again, but bring them up. And that is the same word as Ephesians 5, verse 29, where it is translated nourisheth. So let me hit you with a definition. To bring up means to rear to maturity because you care enough to train. Oh, here is what raising your children means. Just let, let's just compare scripture with scripture. Here is the match meat to that verse. Luke 2, verse 52. You can see it on your handout. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with favor with man. So here's our sixth point for study. Eighth point for study. Raise your kids in four areas, intellectually, physically, socially, 
and spiritually manage their growth in such a way that you take responsibility to see that they're going to develop mentally, bodily, with God, and in relationships with others. But now wait, hold on one second. Because all that is is discipleship. Okay, with God. That is the first goal of discipleship. Get them established, get them grounded, get them stabilized by worship. So pray for their soul's walk with God. Pray for their prayer life. Instruct them to look to God in every single circumstance, every problem. And then respond to that problem with Him in mind, even when they do not get the answer that they are seeking. That's how you establish them in worship mentally. That's the second goal of discipleship. Ground them in the word. Make sure that you know that you have and that you give to them God's words. Make sure you understand biblical authority. And biblical authority means that you know that you have the certainty of the words of God in English in a King James Bible. Bodily, that's the third goal of discipleship. Establish them in the fellowship of this body and the structure of this church. Be present, be a participant. And finally, with others. That is the fourth goal of discipleship. Get them involved with you, with us, with others in ministry, and in outreach. So all I'm doing is spitting truth at you today. These four areas of life are the four areas of raising a child, both physically and spiritually. This is how discipleship takes place in the home. So these are four areas that you've got to make them mature in because you are supposed to be the one who is mature in these four areas. So they should be made mature in their worship. Mature in their understanding, mature in their fellowship, mature in their own personal ministry because of you. So start when they are young because you do need a head start. Number three, discipline your children. Let the whole church say discipline. Okay, then look at verse four. Bring them up in the nurture of the Lord. Now, nurture means education or training by disciplinary correction. Uh, It is defined for you in Luke 23, verse 16. It's defined in Hebrews 12, verse 5, and verses 7 and 8. But you know how else the James Gang translates this word in your authorized version? They translate that word nurture as chastening, chastisement, and instruction. So you nurture a child with discipline and correction. Why is the role of the parent in adulting to discipline a child? Well, this is our ninth point for study. It's because chastisement is the ultimate proof of love. So if you don't discipline your child, it's, and, you, and you know, if you are too lazy to discipline your child, all it communicates to them is you do not love them. If they, get, if they know they can get away with things, they know you do not love them. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, chasten, that's an old word. What, what, what can that mean? Well, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now, 
God pities us as a father. We know that from Psalm 103.13. God comforts us as a mother. We know that from Isaiah 66.13. But God knows the balance between love and scourging, which is whipping or spanking. And he loves us enough to both tell us the truth and keep us on target. And that is where so many parents today fail in the home. There was a preacher one time in the Bible who, he was a passive father. And he was always saying, go ask your mother. And he was a father who over-delegated his responsibilities to raise his own sons. And his name was Eli. And Eli's sons grew up to steal from the offering and have sex with the female ushers. God got tired of all that, so in 1 Samuel 3, verse 13, God tells Samuel regarding Eli, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Oh, he talked to him about it. 1 Samuel 2, verses 23 to 25. But God had it in for Eli... Because as a parent, he didn't stop them. And because he did not control them when they were young, then he could not influence them when they got older. And restrain means you stop it with follow through. So in the final analysis is number four. Admonish your children. Verse four, in the admonition of the Lord. And admonition is calling your attention to something. Admonition is a warning. Admonition says beware. There's only room for one set of parents in the home, and you are it. So admonish your children. Because here's our final point for study. The more warning, the less spanking. And the spanking should take place in conjunction with the instructing. Now, they've taken spanking out of the schools. Pretty much. I mean, I think, I don't know, maybe you can, maybe, maybe they can still use corporal punishment with permission of the parents uh, and that type of thing. Pretty much, though, they've taken spanking out of the schools. They take spanking out of our society. They've taken the Ten Commandments out of our schools. But the question is, are they hanging in your home? And this is something that ought to be passed from father to a child and from that son to the grandchild Because it was never the job of the state to pass God's values onto your children. So do not blame the streets for your failure. Teach them and warn them convincingly, consistently, conversationally, creatively, but conspicuously. And this is telling you how to treat your older children. With younger children, it is the application of pain that trains. But as the child gets older, you owe him or her an explanation and instruction so he can focus his mind as well as change his heart. We got the greatest job in the universe. We get to do engineering of new people for eternity. Not genetic engineering, but character engineering. We get to do soul engineering. And we do that with our spiritual children in Christ through discipleship, and we do that with our physical children in the home and in this church. 
So do not neglect these four responsibilities as a parent. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Say, Alan, I'm so sad because I've, man, I've missed it. If Psalm 127 verse 4 says that children are like arrows in the hand of a mighty man, well, I've already launched my arrow. Well, let me tell you what to do. What you need to do is get on your knees, and maybe you need to get on your knees in a way that they can even see you on your knees, and ask God for a prevailing wind. Because if you will do the right thing starting right now, you will be able to trust God to steer that back on target. Yes, we know they have their own free will. But your best chance at getting them back on target is for you to get on your knees and ask God for a prevailing win. And every parent in here can do at least that. Because even though you may have missed it as an earthly parent, they still have a heavenly father. You still have a heavenly father. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by every foe, that will not tremble on the brink of any earthly woe, that will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod, but in the hour of grief or pain will lean, will lean, will lean upon its God. How do you get that? How do you get Jesus as your God? How do you become a Christian? All you got to do, just pray. Just pray your heart to God. Just say, God, save me today for Jesus' sake. I want to trust Jesus today for everlasting life. And once I get your life, I want to learn how to live it according to your word. I mean, I've messed up. Everything is messed up. Our society is messed up. The schools are messed up. There's nothing that really helps me. God, if you don't do it, I'm sunk. But I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to step out by faith. I'm going to say that if I live according to your word, it'll make all the difference in the world. That doesn't mean that every time I'll get the outcome that I want, but it means I'll get your will. I will get your will in this life. My children will have the best chance they can ever have of following hard after you of walking that hard but right way. So God, I ask you today, save me. Make me born again. Put me in Christ and the Holy Spirit in me. And then let me live for you starting now. And if you prayed today and you trusted Jesus for eternal life, you need to come up here to the front as soon as we either start singing or as soon as we get done singing or any time during the song. We have people standing here at the front. I want to give you a copy of my, my booklet on next steps for new believers. I want you to know how to live according to God's word. It's like I told him yesterday in the discipleship conference. Christianity is a crisis that results in a process getting saved is a crisis you only get saved once you only get saved with that exchange of life between you and jesus 
You give up your old sinful rotten life. You get his righteous spotless life in return. But that crisis results in a process so you can become more and more like him. If you get fed here and attend here, you ought to be a member here. Come up and let us know. If you're saved, you've never been scripturally baptized, you want to get in on that and next Sunday. We're doing baptisms. Come up, come up today and let us know. Next Sunday is our eighth class in the School of the Prophets as we alternate between adulting in the home and looking at the minor prophets. But it's also our pre-Go Conference message. So Habakkuk is going to tell us how to become a person of vision and faith. Be here and bring somebody who needs the gospel good news just like you do. Go ahead and stand. Praise team, send us out singing.